Sabe. Today on the show, we are joined by Dalton Kreis and Hannah Woodside of Megay Melate. It was a really great conversation that we had with these two. Um, they have a, an interesting business model, which is a subscription box that goes out bi-monthly of specifically curated agave spirits. They are based in Oaxaca, and we had a lovely conversation with them um, all about their business model, how they have changed and have to pivot and develop over the course of this past year, um, what is in store for the future. We discussed pretty heavily of why they chose to bottle as an agave spirit versus a mezcal. So I think you'll find that really interesting. Um, so yeah, thanks as always uh, to everyone who listens to our podcast. We've been out in the community a bunch lately because it's getting to be that crazy holiday season and we've met a lot of you. And we are just really heartened and really grateful that you find uh, what we're doing of value. So we just wanted to say thank you. Gabrielle is here, too, to say thank you. Hey, guys. Um, we wanted to also do a tiny, tiny, tiny little petition. Uh, we have not done this ever, so it feels a little weird. But uh, we're going to hit almost a year mark doing Hey Hey Agave. And we never asked for donations. We haven't asked for a sponsorship. It's completely autonomous, and this is something that we do out of love and passion for the industry and the agave spirits and uh, the one way that you can support us is going to our website find what you like and maybe purchase something for a gift or for yourself it will be of great help to have our business keep on growing with the podcast thank you so much i appreciate it Salut to everyone. Um, please rate and review us if you have a chance on Apple Podcasts. It helps a ton. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today, we are joined by Magay Melate, and we have Dalton Kreis with us. Hey, Dalton. Hi, Sabrina. Thanks we, for having us. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. And we have Hannah Woodside. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you guys? Wonderful. As always, we have Gabrielle. Good morning. So guys, thanks so much for being here. I wanted just to start out by um, giving people a little bit of a background. Uh, you guys live in Oaxaca, right? And you are doing something that I find extremely interesting that we have not seen before. And that is that your um, structure is to offer a subscription program for the mezcal that you guys are bottling. So I thought we could just start from the beginning and you can give us a little background about how you came to be living in Oaxaca because you're both from the States and um, tell us a little bit of the origin of the business. Well, we're in Oaxaca. It's my fault. Um, I moved there in 2012 and that was because I had studied Spanish. I had studied communication and um, I went abroad to Costa Rica and just was obsessed. Like I was, I was actually pretty rude when I came back to the U.S. and I was like, I didn't miss anyone. I really want to be back. I'm really depressed. So I was super um, adamant about finding a way to get back to Latin America and keep practicing uh, Spanish, keep um, myself immersed in this culture that I had fallen in love with. And I was looking for jobs um, and wasn't finding anything. And my best friend, since junior high she ended up in Oaxaca totally randomly she also studied Spanish um 
She ended up there because her boyfriend at the time was writing his thesis on the Zapotec language, and he had a month of research that he was going to be down there, and he said, hey, come with me. So she went with him. Um, I keep looking for jobs. Uh, Dalton and I were friends from college, and that same summer uh, we had started a little romance, and so... um, Anyway, she gets back and it, I mean, it was like she showed me pictures, she told me stories and really quickly it became obvious that, uh, I mean, I love Costa Rica and I love the the nature there, but there was just like so, such an evident difference of what Mexico would be and uh, culturally, um, just from a single picture I could tell. Mm. And so um, she said, I want to move there maybe when, you know, maybe when Jake uh, graduates. And then I was like, well, I can go to Mexico with you. So we just made this plan. We're like 22 years old and told our moms we're going to go to Mexico. And they were like, okay, freaking out, but okay, we can't stop you. And, um, yeah, so I went there and that was seven years ago. And I, I just kind of fell in love with it and have held various roles during my time there. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you fell in love with? Like with what, Oaxaca? Yeah. Like, I, you know, I think it's interesting to hear people's perspectives about what draws them there and what keeps you there. Because it's, you know, if you're there for over three or four years, you're you're there. You yeah. Um, it's interesting because when you ask that, I'm like, well, I did fall in love with Costa Rica, too, which is very different. You yeah. know, and that part, part of that is that Costa Rica was my first time outside of the country. Yeah. So that's normal, right? Like, sure. You just kind of are like, ah, it's not where I'm from. It's different and exciting and new and all of that. So, um, I think with Oaxaca in particular, I mean, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so it's like you know the little boxes. Everything looks the same. At least once a day, when I'm just walking around, I have this moment where it's like just so much beauty. And I don't know if that's because, I mean, it's typically in Oaxaca with the weather, which the weather in itself will make you want to stay, um, especially when I'm from, you know, the Chicago winters. So this gorgeous weather and these, the bluest of the blue sky, you know, a pink uh, fachada, pink house, an orange house next to it, a purple like flower and then like a hummingbird and then like cobblestone roads. And it's, it's just so picturesque and so bright and colorful. And so just that alone um, just made me feel happy, I guess. That's so fascinating. What was it like to connect with a community there? Like, you know, people that became your friends. It was hard at first. I mean, I can remember um, I can remember my girlfriend and I like I wouldn't say being desperate for friends, but we're it, it's hard as a as a female. Um, I would say my experience in Oaxaca is that um, the men are very open to getting to know you, and the women aren't so much. But then the issue is that um, at the age I was at, at twenty two, right? Um, like these guys are like, oh, teach me English, and you're like, okay, and then like turns out they want to be your boyfriend and you're like oh I thought we were just gonna be friends so that was really hard to find people that wanted to make genuine connections um and that didn't just view you as a foreigner who was visiting and looking to have like a quick fling fun time right um so it actually took a while for me to feel like I had a community there one thing that I hadn't even really realized but the first time Dalton came to visit me he was like oh my god every seven to 10 minutes on the street, 
you stop and say hi to someone. And that can be someone that you like really, really, you know, know really well that maybe you taught with or worked with or um, is a good friend. Or it can just be like the bread guy that, you know, you've bought bread from. So it's and but it's that's what you do. You stop and you say hi. And so um, it's interesting because even if it's not a very deep connection, just those familiar faces, that becomes your community. And um, everyone's kind of looking out for each other. Do you find yourself doing that when you come back home now? Like stopping and saying hi to everybody like back home? Or no, like in, like a in way the US, I'm like, oh no, not that guy. Like, you know, I'm <laughs> oh, like- really? It doesn't uh, transfer over? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like um, maybe not, maybe maybe in some ways, but it's it's just- it's almost rude in Mexico if you don't stop and say hi. And here, it's I, I feel like it's much more understood. Like, oh, I'm busy. But you know, it has it has a purpose. Oh yeah, it has a purpose because the same way that you say that later in the time you realize that that connection with the two opposite dots of that story from one party to seven years later in another place. Mm-hmm. That's how you find mezcal a lot of times. Like my cousin of a friend and my friend and then they, and then mm-hmm. they, and there's like this is this like almost transparent spider web of of connections that is gonna lead you somewhere that otherwise if you're missing two of those connections that there will be probably reverent for anything else yeah that is not like that full line is not gonna happen all the way down yeah yeah. I mean, I think this is the perfect segue for me to ask you, Dalton. Um, you know, while Hannah was um, living in Oaxaca and and figuring it all out, what were you up to? So I've had a long journey from Dubuque, Iowa, which is a blue-collar town on the Mississippi, kind of surrounded by cornfields where, you know, out of my class of 400, uh, one person went to California, one person went to New York, And I went to University of Illinois out of state. So I was like, whoa, where are you going? Like, not too many people leave. And we don't have a lot of foreign influence in our city and, you know, um, not a ton of international culture. So the journey from Dubuque, Iowa to Oaxaca is a long one with a lot of butterfly effects that would take a long time to uh, link all together. That said, I, um, you know, in college, I got the travel bug when I studied abroad in Germany, and I realized that I wanted to shape my life in a way that would keep providing me opportunities to travel, preferably at you know a company's expense or go to school abroad um, where it's cheaper and makes sense. So I went into engineering, and from there I was living in kind of corporate America building automation machines for corporations and Boeing and NASA and Apple, and these machines were kind of the the epitome of mass production and cutting-edge technology. Um, and that's when Hannah left to Oaxaca, and I decided to mix things up a little bit. Um, I eventually left my job, and I um, went to school in Germany again, and I was studying entrepreneurship, and eventually Hannah and I reconnected, and I wound up back in Oaxaca, a uh, bit of a love story there. And I was really open to living anywhere. And I had an interest in Latin America. And once I got to uh, Oaxaca, I immediately fell in love with it. And then I had to find, figure out, okay, how am I going to sustain myself? I haven't worked for 
about three years and we have quite a bit of school debt <laughs> on my hands. So that's when I launched uh, Oaxaca Me Latte with Hannah's friend and my friend Rachel. And um, that eventually quickly evolved into Mezcal Me Latte after my first Palenque visit to Conejos in Santa Catarina Minas. And that's what we're drinking today is Conejos Martenio. That's fantastic. Um, well, since you already opened up the floor, can I ask you to describe the expression a little bit more so we can explain to our listeners um, what this is all about? I keep on saying Conejo. I know it's the name of a man. So yeah. I tell them what it but means. But I would like you to just briefly, briefly explain why Conejo means rabbit and why this man is called the rabbit <laughs> or rabbit. But it was actually really simple. He said that they had a goat growing up that he called Coneja and he would he would and she was like a really uh poorly behaved goat and she would just run around he's like Coneja Coneja so he'd be yelling to her and his friends could always hear him yelling so they just started calling him Conejo <laughs> so that sounds like legitimate story to me right guys in Mexico in Mexico can't make that up 100, 100% absolutely <laughs> So I know you guys really like the Madre Quiche from uh, two nights ago, but um, I thought 10 a.m. in the morning, a nice earthy clay pot would be interesting. And I chose this Martenio because um, I thought it'd be interesting to, to sample a Martenio, and we don't see as many in the U.S. They're not as common. And a Martenio is, from my understanding, it's a Tobasiche that was cultivated. So they call the Tobasiche in Minas that is wild, uh, Largo. And this is the same species, but for generations, it's come from um, a cultivated origin. And it has a pretty significantly different flavor from the Largo. So our original idea why I have this is a product that never went to market that the whole company was based on. And we had a a box for Antonio Carlos Martinez. Alias El Conejo. Yes. Conejo. And in this box, the theme of this box was Karwinskis, where you could try three Karwinskis side by side, a Largo, a Martenio, and a Madre Quiche, and try to really distinguish the subtle different flavor notes between them. And um, that product never went to market, and we have a, a bit sitting in our warehouse, and that's what I brought today. Before we go one step further, you guys, salucita. Yeah, I would love to take a sip of this. Sorry, I've been doing it <laughs> All right, guys. So I thought that um, I just wanted to let our listeners know a little bit of, of how I came to know about you guys, because you're relatively new on the scene. Um, and I first, I, I think I started following you on Instagram and, you know, just seeing um, these very interesting stories about these mescaleros that you've been working with um, so far. And it was really well curated and the information was really nice. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder what these guys are up to. And then I researched a little bit more and I saw, oh, it's a subscription model. Okay, this is interesting. And a couple months went by and then I... Um, you know, I'm an avid reader of Mescalistas, as I know you guys are as well. Shout out to Susan and Farron um, and Max, of course. And so 
I saw that you had written an article that they published sort of explaining your mission. And I found it really a fascinating read. And so um, we'll link to that if our listeners are interested in reading that, of course. But I thought that it would be maybe a nice model to follow as I kind of start asking you guys questions about the the business and, you know, how you started working with the mescaleros that you have and how this is turning out to look for you guys like a year plus into into the business aspect of it. Um, and so I figured that we can um, just if you can introduce what your subscription model looks like now and then maybe we can backtrack a little bit to be like, well, it wasn't as easy as just like we had this decision to make and we made it and it's working great. Just mm -hmm. like all businesses, you know, you sort of have to go through this like siphoning out period of like, what what is our vision? What is our mission? What's the core tenant? And then what do we need to do to rearrange and reformat to what our community is looking for? So, um, yeah, if you could just give us like a brief description of the model right now as it stands, um, the membership. Sure. So the subscription model as it stands after a few pivots are two half bottles or 375 milliliter bottles and they arrive every other month. Um, the price of which is $115 with the shipping. Um, and these bottles, each bottle belongs to one of the two months and we feature a new mescalero every month and we try to feature a new agave each month. And what the club is really about is exploring different regions, process variations, agaves, mescaleros. So, you know, the subscription model lent itself to that so perfectly. Do you guys um, offer the subscription model? Is it is it just offered right now in the States or can people in Mexico subscribe or around the world? What what what's the distribution like so far? At the moment, we just had got our SAT paperwork in place to make this available in Mexico. We have to redo some of our labels and translate some of our content. The big gap there is now we have two different languages for the digital content. Um, and someday I'd be interested in going to Europe. But at the moment, uh, the U.S. is pretty much our sole focus. Okay, cool. And you guys are a U.S.-based company, or are you, how does that work? What's the structure that way? Yes, we have a Mexican company uh -huh. that we're partnered with our Mexican friend with. And we also have a U.S. company. So one company exports and the other company imports. It gets a little complicated mm -hmm. when you're it's dealing with all this books. stuff. <laughs> it's a little tricky. <laughs> all right. And so um, the, the biggest aspect for me about what how you guys are trying to achieve the connection with with the consumer is through all of the digital marketing content. And, and I say marketing content and that sounds so dry. So let me rephrase. You guys check out their website, check out their social media um, because you're doing so much work to create these little documentary vignettes of the producers that you're working with. It's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, Gabrielle and I know that well. Um, and it's a labor of, of love largely, especially since all the, the content is available it's um you know open source availability so um let's let's go into it uh did this aspect of the business model come like simultaneous with like hey we want to do the subscription we we want to create this experience experience is really an important part of what you guys are doing how can we do that without being in everybody's kitchen or living room or whatever 
Yeah, and if it's okay with you, I think the origin story, there's two different origin stories to this, um, to what we have today coming together. And one of those origin stories, and I'm not shy to say it, is somewhat capitalistic driven. It's a very active, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find a business model that's a great idea. And we were actively searching for um, business ideas. I was teaching a course on idea generation. And one of the methods I was using was the business model method where we say, okay, we're going to focus on a certain business model. Let's say subscriptions. Let's come up with different applications for that. And uh, Hannah was in the class and um, I was helping her out. So I said, what about a mescal subscription? And I didn't know much other than there's, you know, different agaves involved and each batch was different. So I knew it was a really good idea but it didn't even make it to my list of like my top 23 ideas that I kept. I never touched it again. I never looked at it. I never thought of it. It wasn't until I went to the Palenque and had a very organic, genuine experience that really opened up my eyes to how special um, all the context around mescal was. And when I first tried mescal out of a water bottle in a suitcase in Germany, I didn't fully appreciate it and I had no idea, I couldn't visualize what went into this, the people behind it, the process, what this plant looked like. Even if Hannah tried to describe it to me, I needed to see more either in person or videos. And when I went to that Palenque the first time, my eyes were just wide open and I met the mescalero, Conejo in this case. And we went out to his agave field and saw wild agaves that hovered over me. Um, and we learned about the process. And I think it was, you know, when that all ended in the tasting room, sitting around in a circle with Conejo and our friends and his kids running around, and we're trying to figure out which bottle we're going to go home with or which three. Um, that's when I had like this moment where I'm like, there's so much here, I can't ignore it. And I wasn't even thinking about the subscription model, but I'm like, mescal needs to be delivered in a way that people can really understand the context around it and behind it and the people involved. And I tried to ignore this and I tried to work on my other projects, but eventually I just had to Google what's out there for a subscription model. And I saw what was out there and um, I thought we could do things a little differently and really focus on one, a subscription model that sourced directly from independent mescaleros, as opposed to shipping other brands that you could already get in the U.S., we would work with the small guys that don't really have the supply chain or the capital to get their product to the U.S., and those are the people who need the most help. Um, and then along with that, the other thing I really wanted to innovate on is how we deliver context around the, the liquid that's in the bottle. And that would come through both packaging and the digital content. So what I, what I wanted to do is put out content in a very digestible way. Um, and social media lends itself to that so nicely because you can access it conveniently. You can read one little fact. Hey, mescaleros in Santa Catarina Minas like to harvest their agaves when there's a full moon because the sugars are concentrated. Or this year, 
when the agave was planted, we were in the Iraq war. Janet Jackson was performing at the Super Bowl. Just little bits of information every other day that you can digest and um, interesting fun facts that make it entertaining. So that's where the um, whole digital experience behind our company, that's where we focus a lot of our attention. It also make it, <clears throat> you said that it makes it entertaining and, and that's one way, but it makes it real. Yeah. Like you're you're giving people and we so we, we we I have to be very, very honest with you. You're one of the few companies that I have seen that has reached the level with the media, with the content, with the video, with the design to be able to come close because it's impossible to have it. The express like having the real relationship and the real uh, experience of being there, nothing will compare it. If you can get a tiny bit close and, and get that, like, huh, maybe I should get to Oaxaca. Because at the end of the day, yeah, the, the fact that you're you're able to put the Mezcalero name and give them full credit is for them to grow and, and for your business to grow at as well. But at some point, also to bring people to the source and, and, and have that relationship that you have in personally. It's pretty cool. Thank you. So... Let me ask you, you guys are choosing to bottle this as an agave spirit or destilado de agave. What was the thought process behind that and why did you why have you chosen to to bottle the spirit in that way? So originally when I, you know, wasn't didn't have all the knowledge I have now, um, I started the certification process. I think we got to the second step. I had invested uh, like $400 into the certification to be a commercializer. Um, and I started going around to Palenque's and I kept an Excel sheet of keeping track of who's certified and all sorts of different criteria um, showing who I would like to put in the club. And I got to about 20 Palenques when I realized some of my favorite Mescaleros weren't certified. So we either weren't going to use them we were, or we were going to get them certified. So we started exploring, you know, what would it take to get some of these guys certified? And it became so unbelievably obvious that that was not an option, especially for a subscription club. So we had to make a choice, either only use certified producers and choose the best we can find of those or choose our favorite mescaleros and just call it agave uh, spirits. So, you know, I read Lou Banks article on mescal no gracias destilado de agave, por favor. And I messaged him, hey, this was really inspiring and brought me clarity. Can I uh, reference this in a post? of why we're changing our name from Mescal Me Latte to Maguey Me Latte. And when we made that decision, at first we were really nervous, um, but then we, we realized that there is no right or wrong to this whole certification thing and it, it served its purpose and still continues to serve a purpose and everybody has different feelings about bypassing it. But um, we feel really, really um, solid about our decision to go with agave distillates and it really was a hundred percent necessary for our business model your mezcaleros because you don't call them destileros uh they call their liquid mezcal so this is just to be super clear also like there there's for the people that you talk on on daily basis in the palenques in the production they don't call their liquid destilero de agave they call them mezcal 
So if this is the, the certification process and the legalities around it to obtain a name that has been mentioned and has been there for centuries. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a double-edged sword because I understand the, the, the power of the, the denomination of origin and, and being able to be protected in some way or form by the, the, the idea of being part of this, all these numbers and things that will give you the name and the accreditation of call it. And maybe, you know, there's how many palenques you went and you're like, oh, this is really bad. I did not just go out. So I guess it's protection on both sides, but it's, it's kind of interesting for us in the States to see more and more destilados de agave, knowing that, you know, when you get to the palenque, it's called mezcal. It's mm -hmm. no difference. And as we've mentioned, I think a bunch on this show, and I, I think that um, Jay Schrader went into it in detail, um, certainly in his book, Understanding Mezcal, but the idea of an appellation of origin or in Mexico, a denomination of origin is supposed to be used to create this category that allows for, in the best case scenario, protection, protection for the producers and protection for the environment in which it's produced. Um we're not going to get into the weeds around this, but I did want to, to state that. And one of one of the particular aspects of certification that we discuss is the fact that the the, the distillate is tested, right? So that you make sure that the levels are within a certain range. So when it comes down to bottling as a destilado de agave, agave spirit, how does that work? Like, how do you guys determine the ABV, for example? How do you make sure that um, it's safe to drink? Yeah, so it's not required to test. And for our batches, we are not testing for methanol level with the machine. We are having all our friends and close ones and loved ones test it with their mouth. Um, I, I find it pretty easy to, you know, sense the methanol when you, when you sip a, a spirit, but, um, you know, someday we'll, we may test ourselves, but I find when you really carefully select, um, mescaleros with great reputations that you, you really know the quality of their product. They're not strangers and they've established a name, um, as far as the ABV, um, sometimes we outsource the bottling and sometimes we um, bottle it ourselves and uh, measure the ABV ourselves. Cool. And how do you? How have you come to establish these relationships with with your mescaleros? Maybe mescaleras in the future. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, how do you guys go about researching that? Like, is it just a friend of a friend introduces you and they say, "Hey, these guys are doing a really cool project." Like, what, what's that look like? Dalton has, has had a lot of guidance um, through our connections in Oaxaca that um, have already been doing tours, for example, right, to, to many of these palenques, or they are just um, avid mezcal drinkers. So we had a, an immediate connection with a lot of the mezcaleros that we chose initially, um, and we visited them, I mean, most of them, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 times, and... Um, we're on the list when there's a the yearly festival of the pueblo like that type of thing right so what's going to be a tricky um operation going forward is the nature of the club is that you're rotating mescaleros which doesn't give you the opportunity unless they're close by um, or you have this type of connection with them that's been established through someone else to 
really get to know them. And so we kind of have to figure that's something that we're aware of. And, and it's going to be interesting to see when we are going to Puebla or where, right, even if it's still in Oaxaca, um, if we're driving 14 hours to get somewhere just to meet someone, right? It's not like you can like meet someone, try their mezcal, try and buy and, and then represent them accurately for a month's worth of content, the way that we've been representing all of the mezcaleros we've worked with up to this point. And so we're going to have to figure that out. How do we establish a genuine relationship and spend enough time with them that we actually know them and their story and their process and what makes them unique um, without cutting too much into our time and budget, right? So it's going to mm-hmm. be an interesting little dance we'll have to figure yeah, out. Yeah, and I think it's a question of like, you know, how how soon do you anticipate scaling up? Um, and I think, you know, from our experience at least, like Mescal is is slow and steady, and um, as long as you 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 do focus on the the important aspects of keeping it social and you know keeping the the intentions in the right place, it all kind of happens organically. And you know, I think as Americans, I, you know, I can at least speak for myself. There's this living in New York, right? Like there is this anticipation of like, oh my God, I got to get this out. This got to happen. And it's like, whoa, man, like this is not the industry that, that, that asks for it to be like that. This is counterintuitive. Like if anything, it's been teaching me how just to be calm and be in the place that you're at and be really proud of what you've done and know that like, you know, if you speed things up too fast, like it changes everything. Totally. Especially as, I mean, we're foreigners, right? And as much as I, as an individual, might feel like Oaxaca is my home and that I'm part of the community, when I go into a new pueblo, I, I'm not seen as part of the community. And I'm aware of that. Um, and I, I remember, for example, Isaac, who is our featured mezcalero in the signature box, um, his tepestate, he told me that he's had enough experiences with foreigners, gringos, right, that have come, said they're going to buy something, he puts it aside for them, and they never come back. And he said the only reason that he was willing to go into business with Dalton and trust Dalton was because of Darinel, our friend Dari. So that's going to be, you know, how do we show up at Palenques and meet these mezcaleros and explain the project to them Um it, it's so much deeper than that. It's like, you ha- how do you establish trust? And everybody knows, no matter what culture you're from, that trust takes time. And so that's, especially as foreigners coming in saying, we want to buy your product, right? And we want to, and we want to, we want to videotape you, right? We want to come and videotape you. We want to interview you. Like all these things that we, we, that, you know, super no brainers in the US, but like, a lot of these mescaleros have never had a camera in their face like that. So it's, it's just, um, a very, we have to be, it's a delicate situation that we have to, um, make sure we put in the time to establish that trust and that relationship. So it's interesting that we have some mescaleros who are like on Facebook and, you know, even, um, we work with a lot of younger mescaleros, the new generation, as I call them, who are super connected with um, Instagram and Facebook and all these things that, you know, didn't exist 50 years ago. And um, they're even replying when we're putting content up, right? And they're replying to the questions people have. But there's also still a lot of um, mescaleros, including some that we've worked with, who I would say they are not as many times as we've, as we, we have explained the project, Um, They're not totally able to conceptualize it. And if we have like one mescalero in particular, I think 
he doesn't have social media. He's never had it. And we, we did a large purchase from him months ago, um, that, you know, in his mind, he's probably thinking, okay, when's going to be the next time you guys are going to buy from me? Or like, what's this real, where's this relationship going kind of? Um, cause he doesn't see all the work that we're doing on our end to get the product moving so that we can work with him or purchase from him again. So, you know, it's like, okay, well at this point you guys bought from me and now you've shown up like five times. And I don't know, this is just me guessing what might be going on in his head, you know, five times to take pictures or take videos. And he was like, what is this going to be used for? Like, and, and I was like, Oh, I thought, I thought he had understood. Um, so I explained as thoroughly as I could. And, and like, by the end of it, he's like, Oh, yeah. And Adelante, that, like, and great. Now, but now that you guys have, you know, a year under your belts of doing this, like, you can show them videos. Exactly. And so that kind of speaks for itself. Like, exactly. hey, this is what we do, you know? Exactly. And I think um, it's it's just as long as, I mean, that's that's just it. You don't want anyone to feel used. You don't want anyone to feel like you're just Exploited. coming. I think that's yeah, the word. Yeah, totally. And, like, taking pictures and taking videos and asking them questions and taking up their time, their very precious, valuable time, Um if they if they don't see directly what's the benefit, what's happening, they don't. There's not always that connection. So, um, yeah, it's tricky. But no, no one's ever been like, no. It's just, yeah. I will say, one mescalero has been puzzled, yeah. but um, it just took some time to. So there hasn't been a situation either where a mescalero, a producer, has been in some kind of a relationship with another brand perhaps that they've been like I don't know if this will work for our contract model or whatever like have you come in contact with anything like that typically if they have a contract they're just like I can't I have a contract and that's just it okay. right you know okay. it's like no I'm not I'm not able to work with you else. yeah okay and we just would wouldn't go there I mean usually you know I think sometimes Palenques um, are working with three brands and they are totally busy and they're at capacity and for us there's so many mescaleros out there that need help and they're like you know fighting to hang on so why not just go to those guys that need a little more bump um so we try you know if they're really busy and they got three brands with constant revenue let's go to the other mescaleros and help them out um and as hannah was saying you know, they're taking a lot of pictures and being on video and some of them like Conejo is you hit action <laughs> and he just starts going and he loves the attention and he can't wait to see the Facebook content. Other ones, you know, we're cutting into their day sometimes. Right. Like, can you pose for this picture? Can you walk over here? Um, so it's really important that we make sure they benefit from the time they give us. Um you were saying something very important before I forget, I wanted to mention it. Um, big part of your identity as collective, as memberships, of, is the visual, is the videos, is the information, is the transparency. But with that, and Hannah just was mentioning that, you know, it takes time out of the Mescalero's normal process. Are you guys compensating them in some way or form? I know by buying their product is, you know, that's their work. You're paying for the work that they're doing. But if you're taking time and this is material that basically your this content is as important as the liquid. Because without the content, you have nothing other than a bottle that you have to taste with no story. So I, I think there's 
like i don't know how you're doing this and it just it just popped in my mind and i was like i need to ask because it's important uh we have heard a few different critics not from you guys but from different places and different things that you know every time uh somebody comes in with a tour or every like like it's not cost effective a lot of times mm -hmm. you know you're mid-production and you have two tours in the middle of the day and somebody takes half an hour each day that's a mm -hmm. full hour of work mm -hmm. you're eight eight hours day sunlight like it's it's just that the math doesn't really functions so yeah i don't know it was just a thought so we have two formats i mean we came down with like a really high-end uh production crew from the u.s from the east and west coast like six team unbelievably intense production crew and they created some of the most amazing content and photos but the style in which they captured these photos was quite disruptive to the mescaleros day so in that case it's hey we're gonna pay you for your time um does this price sound fair and we overpay them um, because, you know, relative to our cost structure, we can give them an extra 50 to 100 bucks and it's uh, not going to totally disrupt us. Other times, you know, especially once we have a relationship, if we're videotaping them working and they've given us permission and we're buying a batch from them, we don't want to be so calculated and transactional with them. It kind of just doesn't feel right with the culture. Um, we are buying a batch from them, which, you know, we don't get a discount or wholesale price on that. So if we're buying 200 bottles, that's a pretty good deal for them. But then of course we are also, um, you know, promoting them in other ways and our mission project, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. But before we launched our mission project, I asked Lou Banks, you know, like, should we, um, really promote these guys to the point where people can show up at their palenque and what if they start getting so many visitors that their the nature of their day changes and the traditions maybe change with it and they're not paying attention to as much of their work and both of us agreed uh lou quite firmly and you know he can be strong-minded that these guys are adults and we shouldn't treat them like you know they can't make their own decisions so they can decide how they want to handle tourists coming and they can ask tour guides, please call me before you come or this is my rate. Um, some mescaleros, when you show up with a tour, there's, they're going to let you know, hey, today it's going to be 200 pesos for a half hour of my time. So, you know, the mescalero has a say in it and they can make their decisions as well. And I think one thing we're trying to figure out is how to be even less disruptive, but capture even better content because so often we'll go out to a palenque and we have an understanding of what we need to capture that day, what questions we need to ask or what shots we need to get. Um, but somehow still the best, best stuff comes out when the camera's not on. So whether that's a conversation or a joke or something being done in the process, right? Um, and that's the worst when like, you know, I don't know, Don Goyo goes over and does something really cool. And then it's like, oh, can you repeat that? Right. It just doesn't feel right. So we're still trying to figure out or I mean, you can't re organically recreate a, a hilarious moment where everybody, you know, was sitting around trying mezcal and and whatever happens. So we're trying to figure out how we can record that 
in a way that would be, you know, even less of a time suck for yeah, them. For, for me, it's, it's kind of, you know, my, my ethics are very strange. I'm not the typical guy that I have a grayscale. It's, it's, I have a very firm left and right part of that. And knowing how content gets created, because I do it, and knowing how much time it takes to do f- quality content and knowing how much money it takes to have the right equipment and knowing like all these expenses, but at the end of the line, the person that does all this happen because they are the content, not being able to put as much money like the Sony R7 camera that you rent for $600, like why he doesn't get those $600 instead of the rental camera place. You know, it's like it's it's a very weird place for me because I create content a lot to see and know that it's difficult to compensate in in a in a culture that is very, very different. I'm very much aware that we're not talking about New York prices, mm-hmm. neither American prices, neither Mexico City prices. You're like in the country where fifty pesos makes a difference for a week, mm-hmm. you know. Well, not 50 pesos, that's $50 might make some difference for at least food, you know, but is is uh, I think it's something that we think more and more when, when you, we ask somebody either how much credit you can give it, how much more effective will be to, if they don't have social media, create the social media, manage their social media and, and be part of that. Like, it's like, well, they don't know. Well, then you have, I guess is, is part of the responsibility of doing business with somebody that doesn't know to teach them. Mm-hmm. So you're equal partners and there's no like a discrepancy in I'm using all this amazing content from you and who you are and and I'm very grateful and I'm gonna I'm gonna picture it as close and 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 transparent as possible. I'm gonna buy your production at fair price. But there's you know the the, the other part when, when you say that they don't know, teach them. I think that is the, the, the best way on my ethic mm-hmm. part. And this is just personal. It's nothing else. I, I love what you guys are doing. If you have the moment to be a mentor on something that you know that mm-hmm. they don't because you have a different life, that is, it could be very, very, I think it's very important. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. And we yeah. should teach some of our mescaleros a little social media Something. class because it's so important and here's how you post your coordinates to google if you want to establish your searchability on google here's how you do it so yeah i think what's what's tricky about that though is um because we're foreigners as soon as you say you know here's how to post your coordinates on google or here's how to here here borrow the picture we took of you and you can put it on your own facebook or whatever um did they want that? And are you coming off as my way is better than how you've done it, right? So it's it's so tricky because we're foreigners. I think there's a lot of things that if we weren't right. foreigners, if we were Mexican, we could just say and we wouldn't have to think about. Oh, no, 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 no. It takes time. Gabrielle and I were just talking about this and we were talking about the culture in Mexico of establishing relationships and business and business relationships. I mean, Gabs can talk more to this than me, but we've been at this for 15 years together Um, is, is it's, it's an incredibly social endeavor, you know, like the trust aspect is huge and it doesn't happen with one or two meetings. No. And every meeting begins with 30 minutes talking about how your family's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but then you really get to know somebody. Yeah. Right. And so if this is a long-term 
in like relationship, then you put the time in. But again, this is all about this like slow moving, you know, evolving kind of thing. It's so counterintuitive to going to business school in the States or probably even Germany about how things work, you know, like, yeah, there's. You know, there's like the the metrics that you have to think about, and you know the the cost versus the profit value and all of that. But like, they these are human beings that, you know, that you're monetizing their practice and what they're doing, and so it's 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 like almost having to um, come up with your own um, base for ethics of why you're doing what you're doing. And I know for, for all of us sitting at this table, like the mission around our related projects are very, very strong. Um, and so I think it's a perfect time for you guys to tell us about the webpage that you guys are starting for the Mescaleros. Um, and when you think that'll be completed, what it's all about. Sure. So before I get into our our new updated mission project that we've been working on for about three or four months now, our mission at the beginning was to promote artisanal mezcal as a subcategory of mezcal and also promote the mescaleros behind it, give them exposure and create content that is a favor, not a favor to them, but it's beneficial to them. They can share it on social media as well. Um, so we wanted to make all of this content accessible and open to people who weren't even in our club. Um, so we, we took a look at what we were doing and the impact we were having and, you know, giving credit to the Mescalero, putting his name on the label, buying the batch from him and, um, introducing him and his face to a lot of consumers in the U S and long term, I mean, I think we could have some impact there and it's hard to objectively quantify it. But as far as long term sustainability and talking about uh, generations 100 years from now, continuing the practice and making sure they have enough demand and there's consumers out there that are willing to pay the artisanal prices and not the industrial mescal prices, um, that we could have more impact and... You know, it's really about aligning some of our interests as a company with the impact we can have. And that's a great key to social responsibility. You know, you're not doing philanthropic work because it's not sustainable. The guy who comes after me might choose that that philanthropic work isn't worth the bottom line it's costing him. So what we learn in, you know, corporate social responsibility class is there's two ends of the spectrum philanthropic work and fake social responsibility, or as I call it, fake social responsibility, which is purely a marketing scam that doesn't have true impact, but you kind of sell it as you're this company that's saving the rainforest and every case of beer you buy, we preserve one meter of rainforest and you look at the impact they're having and it's a complete sham. And where you want to be is you want to have impact, but you also want to benefit because that's a sustainable model. And the idea we eventually came up with, and I had other influencers and thought leaders help shape this with me, but it's essentially giving them an online presence and leveraging some of the resources and skills we have. And um, one of those things is creating content and doing a little bit of basic web development. I'm no expert web developer, but these mescaleros are far from hopping online and creating their own web page. 
So we wanted to create a free marketplace. We call it the Mescaleropedia, where we can basically have a map of Oaxaca and Mexico. And you can see all the different independent small mescaleros on there. And you can click on one of the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The links. Yeah, you can click on one of the links and it takes you to this mescaleros page. And from that page, you can learn a little bit about them. You can see which agaves he grows and harvests because that's a very important aspect, we believe, to the sustainability of independent mescaleros and the raw material. Cultivation. Yeah. You know, where are they getting their agaves? Um, you can see videos to kind of learn his personality and pictures of his palenque and his process and all of his process details. Um, you can even, you know, we put what we recommend or we find particularly special, which varietal. Um, and most importantly, we put their phone number and we put their GPS coordinates with a link to Google Maps so that people can hopefully track them down. Now, whereas, so it's sort of like a digital Ruta de Mezcal, like it's, yeah, it's, exactly. yeah, for people um, to travel on their own. Exactly. So whether it's a tourist trying to reach them for a tour or whether it's a local restaurant in Oaxaca that really wants to get in contact with a new mescalero in a certain region or whether it's a mezcal, um, whether it's a bar in the U.S., who wants to learn new mescaleros and source directly through them, even if they don't use us as the exporter or importer, we're trying to provide accessibility to these mescaleros and we do it for free. So we do all the web development behind it for free um, and we don't charge either the buyer or the tourist or the mescalero. So we're not Airbnb, we're not Uber, we're not taking some sort of commission on transactions happening. We're just trying to create this network of independent mescaleros and get them exposure so that there's a demand, you know, a efficient supply chain to reach them. And in this way, hopefully they get a little more demand and they can continue to compete against more efficient uh, mescal production methods. Gabrielle, do you want to play devil's advocate or do you want me to? Oh, I'm great uh, devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can do it. Give it to me. I, 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 I went over all right. So something that comes to mind, and that is that um, you could be viewed as a disruptor mm -hmm. to the industry by doing something like this. Now, it might be starting on a small scale, but who knows where this is going to lead you guys sure. in the next couple of years. Um, what, do you have any response to somebody that might have, you know, be in the industry for a long time and say, you know what, guys, like what you're doing is going to really damage some people's livelihoods because you're exposing all of these smaller producers to essentially not only to the consumers, to people like us that find this stuff really fascinating, but also to other big business prospects, you know, that might uh, approach them and say, hey, we really like what you're doing. We'd like to, you know, talk about maybe showcasing some of your expressions in this, that way. And, you know, before you know it, we've yeah. got like the big three coming after everybody sure. in some way, shape or form. Now, again, I think that you made a really good point in saying, well, that this is all part of the open market. Like these people are adult like, you know, they can make their own decisions. They have their own businesses, their own families to think about and to take care of. Absolutely. But by 
by doing something that is very open and bold in this way mm -hmm. and basically saying to all of the um, secrecy around big business and you know your 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 corporate secrets or your relationships or your contracts that are legally bound what do you say to that absolutely and yeah um you know change is inevitable that's like one of the most inevitable things in the world i think change taxes and death um but there's two things i would like to say to that one when we source our mescaleros we really choose which personality types and which mescaleros we're going to choose to work with. And pride is a big part of that and their um, respect for tradition and independence. So we have a lot of mescaleros like Felipe uh, Sanchez, who says, you know what, people show up to my palenque and they say, I want 10,000 liters of Madre Quiche every three months. And I tell them, no because he wants independence and he doesn't want to be owned by anybody. And Hannah, you can agree or disagree, but would you say a lot of our mescaleros have this very strong-minded um, feeling towards independence and taking pride and having... Um, Isaac, for instance, used to have two stills and he saw that his quality was having more variation. So they sold the second still and now they just have one still. So my first response is we have to choose who we put on this platform um, and really know the motivations behind them. And something we talk a lot about with the Mescaleros is, you know, why they choose to continue to make Mescal. And of course, everybody needs to make money and um, everybody needs to put food on the table. But these Mescaleros have motivations that go deeper, and especially the generational Mescaleros where they, I really feel like they're gonna stay true to their values. The second thing, and again, I talked with, um, I talked with uh, Lou on this, is consolidation of the mezcal market is an inevitable pattern to every industry. Big oil companies merge and ac acquisitions take place. And that's just typically what you see in any industry over the lifespan of that industry. But if you can pay these mescaleros in a way where they have a very nice lifestyle, and even more importantly, Lou pointed out to me, you need to make sure that money's trickling down to their workers because it's those workers who could potentially um, leave the palenque and go work for the bigger uh, mescal producers. So I think paying fair prices and knowing when to give them a little more money than what they even asked you for is really critical to making sure they are living a lifestyle where they don't need to sell off to these bigger corporations. So you, you mentioned Lou a few times, and I, I'm aware that you have a very important collaboration, at least for what we have been talking today. Who's your foot on the ground in Oaxaca? Who's, who's yeah. your source to bounce to all these thoughts that are super important? And something like, okay, this is this reality. Yep. And, and they have been here for 40 years, not yep. six. You know, or they're, you know, born and raised in Oaxaca in Santa Catarina Minas. Sure. So I meant to bring up this name earlier when we were talking about sourcing Mescaleros because he is a key, key figure in our company. Um, one of the leaders that allows us to do what we do. I always come out front outright and say, I am an entrepreneur and a businessman and an engineer 
who fell in love with mezcal, but I am not a mezcal expert and I am from the States and I'm not from Oaxaca. And what I pride myself on as an entrepreneur is surrounding myself with people who are the experts in whatever I need them to do um, or whatever we need to accomplish. And that man's Darinel Silva from Miahuatlan. He uh, was born in Miahuatlan and about six, six and a half years ago, he left his architecture career to become a mezcal tour provider. He got his start with Mescal Tozba and Edgar and spending a lot of time in the Sierra Norte with them. And that's where he fell in love with Mescal and realized, you know, he didn't want to work in an office. And he was from Miahuatlan, which is, you know, next to Matatlan, the capital of Mescal, I would say. So he started a full-time job giving Mescal tours. And it's unbelievable how obsessed and connected and knowledgeable he is about every mescalero and how many there are i think the other day we're like yeah let's go visit gregorio on this day and maybe get some madre quiche and he goes yeah gregorio has 42 liters of madre quiche but he goes and gets his tomatoes at two o'clock on sunday and i'm just like gosh you know the schedules of the mescaleros and where they're gonna be which days because he's constantly on the palenque that's what i was trying to say you know so, like if, if if all your information and bouncing ideas no. was just from somebody that sure. is on this side of the line it's like i will Absolutely. i will question you like yeah. this you need to have the same strong important presence of somebody that will tell you you know what that's you need to put another thousand dollars on that like yeah. not not a couple of pesos not a couple of dollars like your price is off yeah is darianel part of the company yes okay so it's not just Darinell, but we have a network of friends that are involved in York, um, who does a lot of the operations and runs custom mescal tours as well. He's from, his family's Mi from Miahuatlan as well. Um, so we're working with him on a daily basis. So we always have input from locals who have lived there. But then the other big source of influence is just going out to the Palenques, and talking to the mescaleros about their opinions and what they want. And that is as equal or more important than talking to Lou, talking to Darnell. It's the mescaleros that we're trying to serve. Um, so, yeah. So you talk about fair price for the mescaleros for buying their batches. What does that mean? Because there's been a lot of conversations that we've had where people have been like, well, we're paying fair price. You know, it's really important to pay fair price. Now... In the world of, of um, artisanal and ancestral mezcal, what does that look like feet on the ground in Oaxaca? Sure. So my attitude towards fair price has gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I just want to tell you about my experience over the last year as someone from the U.S. Um, buying something at wholesale. So when I went out to the Palenques and I was trying to understand the price points for the business plan, I was not angry, but I was very confused and a little off put when the price for one bottle was, let's say, 400 pesos. And if I was going to buy 300 bottles, the prices are also 400 pesos per bottle. And I really felt that I was kind of being <laughs> taken advantage of. I'm like, there has to be some sort of marketing discount in there. Like, 
you can't tell me, you know, the time you spent with me today, if you sell one bottle, it's the same as 400. So I was kind of feeling like I was receiving the short end of the stick and maybe perhaps being treated um, as a foreigner. Um, and then eventually I came to accept this. And I thought that I was doing the Mescaleros, you know, kind of a, a solid by paying whatever price they asked. That was our attitude is we're not going to hardball negotiate with you. We're not going to use the leverage we have as someone who can get your product to the U.S. to try to squeeze you down. Um, honestly, when you look at the cost structure, it's FedEx that's taken all the money or the shipping company. And, you know, the cost of the mescal, we can afford to pay them the price they ask, even if it's 25 to $35 a liter for clay pot exotic. U.S. Agaves. dollars we're talking yeah. about. Yep. So I thought, you know, I'm a great person and, you know, uh, I'm not negotiating <laughs> at all. And I love negotiating. And I think um, it was Jay and reading his book and having a conversation with him about the culture behind uh, some of the more rural mescaleros and that they price their items not based on market value. They price their items on what do I need to get by to get to the next batch and the next sale. So they have a much less capitalistic, what's the most I can get and what's the market value and more of a socialistic kind of, what does my family need to put food on the table for the next couple of weeks? Do you pay your pen? Excuse me? Do you pay upfront? Or do uh, you we come when the, when the batch is finished? We pay 50%, 50%. Um, which usually it covers their raw material and their workers' wages, and then they get the, the actual profits at right. the end. So it was Jay who kind of opened up my eyes to this idea that like we need to understand and help them out and educate them. So there's been two different situations for me. There's been a situation in Miawatlan where the market price seemed to be around 200 pesos for a liter for this varietal. And this mescalero wanted to charge 350. And we really wanted to work with him because of the relationship we had and the care he had for his agaves. And we put a value on that. We said, this guy really is going to ensure that the agaves he uses we're maintained by him for the last 10 years and we respect that and it has a value and we should pay for that value. But the almost double the price from the guy down the street was really hard to Does accept. He, does he own the same agaves? Yeah. Yeah. Gabrielle just asked if he owned the same agaves. What do you mean by that? Yeah. You, you, you put in a price on somebody that has a field yes. that takes 10 years to yeah. take care daily. Yep. And versus the one that is next door that has a steel, mm -hmm. but not my half. If he has to buy the agave from somewhere in sure. order to make the liquid. Yep. So they're, they're two different bowls. Yep. Yep. So he grows his own agaves and he takes care of them. And, you know, his father was taking care of some of those agaves that he's now going to harvest. So anyways, this was one situation where I asked him, hey, we really want to work with you. Can we just come down to 300 pesos 
on the uh, price point, it's still 150% of the guy down the street. And would you be willing to do this? And we will be repeat buyers. So that was early in my experience where it was the first time I actually broke my rule and I negotiated. Yeah. Do you guys also negotiate volume too? Like, to, is there any sort of... Oh, like um, guaranteed yeah. throughput. Exactly. We're just not in the financial position to guarantee it. So Hannah's favorite moments are when we get to text our mescaleros and say we need a hundred more leaders because they you can feel that they need it they're like when do you guys need more and they're texting us and we're like sorry we thought we would go through more boxes but we're just not going through them they're not selling the way we thought yeah so um, it's such a rewarding feeling for when we do get to put in the order and then we get to see them face to face and they have a huge smile Back to the story, now in my later experience, we went to a town outside of Sola de Vega, and we were looking at getting coyote, um, clay pot distillation, double distillation, and they were going to charge us 300 pesos for clay pot distillation. We said, you know what, given all the expenses in our cost structure, we can afford to pay these guys 400 pesos So we came out and said, the price is too little. We want to make sure that you guys make it right. We don't want you to cut the tails in a certain way that protects your profitability. And we don't want you guys to lose your ass on buying the raw material because they could only harvest half themselves and they had to purchase the other half locally. So we just said, we're fine to pay 400. Just make it the best you can. So that's what I consider being... um, socially responsible and applying fair prices is know the market know that there's some elasticity both ways that can be justified and do soft negotiations with these people and treat them fairly because they don't know the market that we do and they don't know what we're selling it for in new york city yeah um so i think that's the way to handle it and to your point, I think it's really like, you know, as I said, we're linking to the article that you wrote for Mescalistas, which I think you you really lay out the different costs that sort of accrue over the course yes. of getting it from the Palenque to our living rooms. Um, and as you said, transportation is a huge one. The other one are taxes that we all love to pay. So when, you know, when you're saying the 300 pesos, we are talking about a markup value where your profit margin is very tight, I would say. I mean, I I haven't seen your books, but like I can imagine that being able to offer the subscription value that you are for the distillates that you're that you're offering, um, the margins must be pretty tight, but you're direct to consumer, right? Like you guys aren't in different stores or other retailers where we can buy your stuff and so there's a benefit to that but it's also um you know there's there's definitely risk factors (laughs) so i wanted to add one more thing because we're very conscious of all the decisions we're making and always checking our behaviors aligned with our mission and our vision and so forth and so two weeks ago i sat down in chicago with two certain people that their names have come up a lot and i had this quite radical idea, but I felt very confident about it. And I wanted some way to be, I wanted to post the prices we pay per liter 
with a receipt signed mescalero can hold the receipt and we can have some third party organization validate and they can you know once in a while call the mescalero make sure whoever's doing this like almost like a third party control system but i had the idea i don't care if people know what we pay because we pay in my opinion fair prices and the prices are very high and if anything it shows people how much money is behind making agave spirits compared to vodka and whiskey which costs you know 78 cents a dollar for a liter um but they both thought i was absolutely insane and told me <laughs> not to and that the consumers just would not understand the truth behind almost every product which is you are paying for packaging and shipping whether it's your coca-cola that mm -hmm. you get at mcdonald's whether it's That's your right. candy bar, your anything, uh, your HelloFresh right. subscription model. When you, when you see a website that says free shipping, make no mistake. That yeah. shipping has been yeah. rolled into the, into the price that you're paying. You think, oh, I'm getting a deal. Well, I mean, it looks like it, but really, like, it's just being folded into the price. Absolutely. And so, you know, you're paying for packaging and shipping. So when people in the alcohol world there's such a gap between what the raw material cost and the final price because of our complicated, outdated legislation and the three-tier system and the 50 different states and the excise tax at the federal level and the excise tax at the state level. So alcohol is its own animal where that gap is so large that the consumer just, unless they have a business background, they're not going to really appreciate um, the price and your transparency. I'm still open to the idea if anyone wants to give input on, you know, whether they think it's a good idea or if it could have real impact. That was my other question. Does this impact anything? I'm not going to do it if it's just a marketing scam. But if posting prices allows the consumer to make a more informed decision and our consumers are acting in a way that they respect that, the way they totally respect the details on the label then maybe this is something we should consider doing. There's a there's a video that Ulises Torrentera and Sandra Ortiz from Institute for, I think is the blog that he has, uh, Hablando de Mezcal. And it basically, it shows exactly all the, the you know, this whole conversation that you just said. Uh, but one of the important things, and you're going to start seeing it, is the taxes in Mexico. Is a whole different beast. So I understand that's why you don't have the the membership yet, but they're not. It's not different from here. Like it's it's just so much money goes to nobody else but the government. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it, and it's the well. Biggest... Wait, let's not make yeah. that assumption. <laughs> it's supposed it is, to go to nobody else yeah, but the government, but who it knows? It has <laughs> been the biggest headache currently of our company is dealing with the Mexican tax structure, and it's been. I couldn't believe the expense behind it that we did not account for in our margins and plan and the time it consumes. And it's not just the taxes, but we have to pay an accountant every single month to file taxes. And just the cost of that is, you know, upwards of $2,000 in accounting fees per year. That's not the taxes. That's just paying the accountant. Not to mention all of Hannah's time. She's sitting in the office trying to wrap her head around how can we do this more efficiently? This is insane, 40% so tax. This is a perfect example. For example, you have this you know, $2,000 fee. 
and yeah. you still like you still have to worry about paying 400 pesos per liter yes it's like it's, it's so disproportional yes. the service of one person to the actual product that you're selling mm -hmm. like it's not that you have to repack like you don't have to do anything to the liquid the liquid is done yep your raw material is raw material production you're you're basically just packing yep and then you see this other number that has no 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 there it doesn't fit anywhere in the production line or even the cost to think about a product and then you're like oh shoot i didn't even remember the tax guy that i have to pay every month for the next 12 months in order to make business you know yeah absolutely there's one more thing I wanted to add, and you can choose to include it or not, but I find it important to our identity. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to say how we view ourselves when we started this uh, project and how we continue to view ourselves is not as the Magay May Latte brand. That's just an identity and an entity for the, the government to recognize us by. Of course, that's not totally true. We are a brand. There is a lot of marketing and sales that go into this. But we really see ourselves with two main roles. We are a logistics company that sources and gets it to the U.S. And we have a distribution chain and we have partners in place to try to do it as efficiently as possible. And that's our value creation is finding the mescalero and connecting them to the end consumer. And the other part of our company is... I think a media production company, we are about content creation and capturing videos and creating social media posts. Um, so I think we see ourselves as the core competency is the mescalero relationships and almost educating people through content. And Magay May Latte is just a name we have, but we want to be thought of as the company that does the mescalero club. Because the Mescaleros, they are our brand and they are front and center on our website and on our, our bottles. So they are the brand. We are the logistics company and the media company behind it. It's a silly thought, but I, I it just popped my brain and it's like, so your Mescalero could be uh, treated and paid and, 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 and work as your influencer on the modern technology media yep. uh creation in the states you have the influencers that they get paid x amount of money just because they're they're able to capture the essence of whatever you're doing you know so they they can be these people too you know yes can be part like you know it's equally as important as the liquid the personality and the the the, the connection that you're able to have with the memory of drinking something yep there's so much we wanted to cover today and talking with you guys but um this kind of gets back to the fact that like, you know, what your original intentions were are not exactly what you wound up with today in, in the structure of, of Magay Melate and what it looks like. So why don't we talk a little bit about the signature box and, and where that idea came from? Um, everybody that's listening, go check it out online. It's a really beautiful handcrafted piece of love, I would say. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful uh, addition to any anybody's um, library of mezcal or a wonderful gift. But it really, I, I see what you guys tried to do as far as like, okay, if you can't be here, like let's bring yeah. it to you. And something that I wanted to say because I recently had um, the pleasure of opening one up myself and looking at it. The first thing that came to me was the smell. Mm -hmm. 
of the natural mm-hmm. fibers. I don't know if those are agave fibers that use the packet or like some kind of rope or hanekin or something like mm-hmm. some jute, but like you smell this earthiness immediately and it brought me back right away. It's just the same idea yeah. of like you could have not traveled to Mexico for a really long time, but like you just get this smell of mezcal just from the, the copita or the bottle and you are transported. Yeah. Yeah, we really, you know, went into this project with how can we simulate the Palenque experience because that's where the inspiration for the whole company was centered on was my experience going to Conejos my first time. So we wanted to tap into all five senses and that's where some of the Bagasso packaging idea came in place. So even in our mezcal club, we sprinkle a little Bagasso in there, just why not? Um <laughs> Anyways, we started this business model with a with a subscription concept that still hasn't come to fruition, even though um, we've paid a lot of suppliers and we have a lot of mescal in our warehouse for it. We pivoted to the uh, signature box. And the signature box is not just for the mescal enthusiast. It can be for the mezcal enthusiast or it can be for someone who wants to discover mezcal. And I find it to be a really comprehensive experience taking you through uh, different agaves, different process variations, mountainous terrain, valley terrain, um, different pot distillations, clay, copper, refrescadera. Um, and then it wasn't just the mezcal, but was capturing the culture of Oaxaca and how that's integral to mezcal itself so you have the copitas and the different gifts so part of the motivations behind the signature box were you know we're a new company and nobody really knows who we are and we haven't established a reputation or brand loyalty in any way Um, so it's going to be very difficult to launch a subscription and get subscribers on an automatic basis so let's you know try to be wise about it and let's grow a customer base through the signature box um well we missed our christmas deadline we had a lot of bureaucratic problems we had a lot of supplier problems surprise um and you know in february once the box launched i think we sold uh 30 boxes or 40 boxes and I had completely bankrupted the company and me and hannah had this moment where she's like you spent two thousand dollars on agave paper dalton i'm like (laughs) god no way but um i did and i still can't believe it of all the things i you know could uh do stupidly i wouldn't expect the cash flow management to be a big one um anyways when we're off mike i'll share my spreadsheets with you so you can see where we've royally screwed up to yeah (laughs) so we eventually had our backs against the wall um we were in debt and we needed to launch the subscription model whether it was ready or not um so we had zero dollars marketing money and people like uh mezcal phd and mezcalistas and mezcal reviews they just kind of got behind our mission and the concept behind it and they thought on the one hand you know the impact and mission is positive And on the other hand, this is really cool and we want to see this in the market. And it was with their support that we were able to get to 60 or 70 subscribers upon launching, which is quite a feat for, you know, it's $58 a month. Um, So we're pretty lucky because had we not had their support, 
I don't know that we would be on this podcast right now. Absolutely. And I think that's a testimony to the small, tight-knit community that we are, a stateside. You know, like we talk all the time about what it's like being here because we're here. And I think that like where we we have the opportunity to help to um, educate people in ways that show the values that we hold and also, you know, being repre- well, you guys being representatives of the producers themselves. I don't know. It's, it's, it's something to be said. Like there's a there's a line in Spanish that you say like "juntos somos más," that mm-hmm. you know together we're more. Yeah, and, and it's kind of redundant when you say it in English, but "más" meaning we're more powerful. Yeah, we're more strong, we're more effective, we're more inclusive, we're more we're more of humans, and that that is such a, and at least in New York, it's so interesting to see. And probably you have your own feeling of mm-hmm. that. Your community is what it makes your business grow yeah. uh, healthy. And this industry is as special as the spirit of Mescal. I know that sounds cheesy, but this industry is so, it's like a coalition where like we all are supporting the sustainability of the tradition, the agaves, the decentralized independent mescaleros. And everyone has a different motivation for doing so. Um, I think artisanal agave spirits are just worth saving that they're so cool. It would be such a shame to see, you know, as, as John puts it, the edges get eroded by industrial mescal. But, um, whenever we see a brand that we like, I love to reach out to them and just say, how can we collaborate? How can we be allies and work together to help benefit each other? So I think it's such a special industry and it goes beyond just the the people, um, the businesses in it, at least for my brand and my experiences, the customers that Magame Latte have are totally aligned with everything I just said. They're just really great people. And we, we have leaky bottles and we have broken <laughs> bottles and, you know, shipments go out late. And I cannot believe how patient and understanding and just awesome people every single one of our customers has proven to be. And I'm just really proud and excited that the next several years of my life are working in a space like this. And I'm really excited that there's a microscope over Mescal in a way that other industries don't have. Yeah, this industry is really special that way, right? It's unbelievable. And like, don't fuck it up. Um, (laughs) You know, when it comes to the preservation of artisanal mezcal, um, we have the transparency through social media and we have the power of influence that if we cannot truly preserve some of the traditions in this decentralized network that we're all trying to do, over the course of the next 50 years, there's no hope. <laughs> there's no hope for you know, right. the, the wealth gap and capitalism and greed in oh. the world. So it's up to the consumers and the brands, um, more so than the government, to really make sure this does get preserved. And we'll see. Yeah. We'll, we'll see it in our lifetime. And that's a really exciting thing to be part of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I hope to touch base with you guys, um, you know, down the road to see um, just how this has been evolving. And also maybe to, to touch down more specifically about um, 
different initiatives that you guys have for sustainability and and how things are unfolding. But for right now, I want to thank you all for being here with us and explaining um, what your mission is. Uh, who is Maggie Melate? Um, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you guys. Hey Hey Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salisita.